What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. We're just coming off of our five-part series investigating different sci-fi properties, kind of trying to answer the question of what is sci-fi. And we had had planned in our Rick and Morty episode to discuss this thoroughly, seeing Rick and Morty that has so many different versions of types of sci-fi, in particular in its latest season, we thought it would be the perfect discussion point to kind of marinate and then expand on what sci-fi actually is and what we have learned. And then things kind of got, in a Rick and Morty fashion, off Off the the rails. rails. (laughs) We did not plan that, by the way, everybody. No, I just knew you were going to say that. And, you know, our AC went out in the middle of it. We had to rig away to try to keep the podcast studio from getting incredibly hot. It did get incredibly hot. Uh, Our AC, thank Odin, is finally working and has been working for almost a whole week now. So we're hopeful we're out of the woods there. Yeah. I hope we didn't just jinx it. Yeah, absolutely. Heat wave, no air conditioning, and my wife, Laurel podcast co-host is pregnant. Very pregnant. So it's been a interesting series of events. Long story long at this point, we kind of got off the rails and didn't really sum up the series of sci-fi the way we really wanted to. Or the way it deserves. And we started discussing our next episode and we have a slate of episodes planned and we felt that Sci-fi being such an important genre of film, TV, and literature to us personally, and sci-fi being very important right now in popular culture, having a bit of a moment, I guess, over the last 20 years, becoming one of the predominant forms of storytelling, one of the predominant forms of fandom, we really wanted to talk broadly speaking about the science fiction genre. We're going to filter this discussion through the last five episodes, and we're going to try to connect some of the dots and maybe see where some of the dots don't connect. Just a reminder, we started this series with an episode on 2001, A Space Odyssey. Then we went to the uh, classic sci-fi horror movie, Alien. After that, we did Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Then we did Terminator 2, Judgment Day, And then we talked about Rick and Morty season five, in particular, episode six, the one with the story train is where we focused and the conversation kind of went in its own direction from there. So these are the five properties 
that we selected to kind of teach us what sci-fi in particular in film and TV means. And we're going to revisit them. So please listen to those episodes before this one, because there might be something we've covered that we're not going to really flesh out again. Um, If you haven't seen any of those properties, please watch them before you listen to this. And I'm just really stoked to take a step back and paint a broad brush What is science fiction? What have we learned? We spent a month and a week dedicating our lives to this project, at least a good portion of our free time, I should say, to this project. And I kind of want to put a bow on it or a pin in it, if you will. Yeah, I would love to. And, you know, one thing that you'll realize from any miniseries that we do here on The Midnight Myth or any, like, series where you try to curate the best of the best in any genre or like the best examples to introduce you to a particular genre is that we're going to leave a lot on the table. It's like the survey class in college where like, if you really want to go in deep, you have to take semesters and semesters worth of study of these properties. So like we could have taught, you know, a 10 week course on 2001, a space odyssey and done it shot by shot and barely even touched the sci-fi elements, just done the cinematography. So uh, that is just to say, obviously we left a lot on the table with this series, uh, but it's not the first time, nor will it be the last time that we touch on science fiction. Uh, You know, we have gone back and done Bill and Ted episodes. We have done uh, episodes on E.T. and Back to the Future. And in the future, we will definitely revisit the genre. This was just a really cool way to pull in some of the like highest uh, highest rated, like most acclaimed, most beloved sci-fi movies and TV, and try to learn something about the genre writ large from it. Uh, so this will be uh, by no means an exhaustive discussion of the genre, but we're going to try and uh, wrap everything up together. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. You know, I think of when I went to community college after graduating high school. I took Western Civ 101 and it started with the ancient Greeks and it ended in World War II. Do you think I actually (laughs) learned anything about Western civilization? Right. I learned the the sort of rough outline, right? And so many ways, what we're going to do here is going to be a rough outline of sci-fi. And we picked these particular movies and finally a TV show. And we did this intentionally and we did it in the order intentionally, We wanted to look at sci-fi in a historical and a linear way. So we started with 2001 in the 70s. We went to Alien. I'm sorry, in the 60s, pardon me. We went to Alien in the 70s. We went to uh, Wrath of Khan in the 80s. We went to T2 in the 90s. And then we jumped forward to the 2020s for Rick and Morty. So I know there's a big gap there in time between T2 and Rick and Morty. But we wanted to look at how the genre has changed in a visual medium over the scope of the last, so 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, zeros, aughts, so the last 60 years of cinema and television. And I think we, we've learned a lot in doing this project, and I'm really, really excited. You know, you mentioned that this is not an exhaustive conversation, so if somebody does want to reach us with thoughts, opinions, feelings, ideas. How can they find us, Laurel? Well, the best thing they can do is hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. 
Uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want more content from the Midnight Myth, head to our website, midnightmyth.com. You'll find blogs and extra information there. You can sign up for our email list. You can also get a link to our Patreon, which is a place where you can support us for a small monthly donation. And our Patreon supporters do get extra content from us as well. So if you support us at the $5 level, you're going to get a monthly bonus episode, which is usually a really fun uh, pop culture debate between Derek and me, or we'll run some movies through our uh, very scientific, very distinguished, award-winning formula for how to determine the perfect movie. Um, uh, just to be clear, because this is on the internet, it's not any of those things. It's none of those things, but it is a lot of fun. So uh, definitely consider supporting us if you have $5 to spare each month. Uh, it would go a long way in helping us to continue making the podcast and continue improving what we do. Uh, and thank you to those of, of you who already support us. Another way to support us monetarily is through buying merch. Uh, so also on midnightmyth.com, you'll just click shop or store or merch, whatever I have it as is on the website, but we have tons of stuff there for you. Uh, the best way you can support the podcast costs no money at all. It's just to leave us a five-star rating and a review on your favorite podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, because that helps us stay high on the charts and it also helps new people find us. So that is a really great way to help us out. And it also just feels really great to know that you're listening and that you like what you hear. Uh, so that is it for me. And Wheel of Ka update. We've been trying to get a Wheel of Ka episode done now for almost a month and a half. We've been ready to record, but life circumstances... There's been a pandemic. ...have conspired against us from being able to do it in a way that is both... Um, in Steve and I's schedule, as well as safe with the pandemic. We were actually going to do it last week. Then the AC broke in the house, and that just kind of, you know, screwed the pooch on that one, for lack of a better term. And then this week was just impossible with scheduling for Steve and I to kind of hammer it out. And I honestly don't know when we're going to have that episode, but we will have it as soon as we can. And we'll keep you up to date. That's going to be on Salem's Lot. Uh, so definitely pick up that book. I am reading it now too. So I'm excited to read it along with Derek and Steve. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to talk about it. It's just really a matter of how can we do it in our schedules and also do it safely with the pandemic. Awesome. So shall we? On with the show. You know, this is usually where we do the briefest of brief recaps, but we're going to have to skip that because I can't recap five movies. Actually. Can I try? Well, I mean, yeah, if you want to. 2001 A Space Odyssey is a wonderful movie that takes place from the dawn of man and investigates their evolution through a uh, mysterious monolith to a uh, space child being reborn from Jupiter and returning to Earth. Bing. Um <laughs> Uh, let's see. Alien is the story of an evil, greedy corporation can forcing space miners to investigate a mysterious phenomenon that unleashes a parasitic alien that tries to kill the crew. The sole survivor is Ripley. There's also an evil robot. Bing. Star Trek II Wrath of Khan is the story of the Star Trek Enterprise and an aging Captain Kirk reuniting with his old nemesis Khan and Kirk learning how to be young again. It features the death of Spock, the destruction of Khan, and the rebirth of a planet. Ding. Terminator 2 is the story where the Terminator is traveled back in time, reprogrammed to protect John Connor from another Terminator, which is a liquid metal T-1000. They spring his mother and they try to change the future to end Judgment Day. The machine learns how to cry, but it's something he can never do. 
Bing. Rick and Morty are on a story train, and that story train has literally gone off the rails, only to find out that they are an AI trapped in a story train purchased by the real Rick and Morty from the Citadel of Ricks, the lesson being capitalism is great and God, I love money. Bing. (laughs) I can't believe you just did that. That was great. You deserve a prize. I was your, really animated about it too. Yeah. I totally just improved all that, by the way. Your I'm a little certificate, proud. Your certificate's in the mail. Anyway, what I was about to say was while uh, while we don't have a brief recap planned, although Derek just pulled one right out of his butt, I am going to start with a brief history of science fiction. So this is Woo-hoo! basically a briefest of briefest recaps of centuries of writing and genre creation. Uh, so if that's cool with you, I'd love to start Uh, you know, by talking about the origins of the genre. Please do. I can't wait to hear this. Well, we've already talked about how it falls under the umbrella of speculative fiction, but obviously science fiction has its own very clearly defined set of conventions. It deals with imagined futures, time travel, space travel, advanced technology, parallel universes, all that sort of stuff. You can recognize it pretty easily. It was popularized in the modern era, but surprisingly sci-fi has ancient roots. This always blows my mind. The first written text that we recognize sci-fi conventions in is called A True Story. It's a novel by Lucian Samosota, written in the second century CE. It features space travel and encounters with extraterrestrial life, as well as encounters with some of the figures of the Trojan War and the Odyssey. So it's got this interesting meld of mythology and technology. Can I ask a question about that? I know you just yeah. started. Is that okay? Yeah, please. I don't mean to interrupt. Is the um, travel to space and extraterrestrial in that story, is it divine and magical in nature or is it technological? There's both. Uh, there are, and there's interesting scholarly debate about whether you can call this the first sci-fi text because there is intervention of these sort of divine and mythological figures, but uh, there are absolutely evidence of science and technology being the propelling force behind that space exploration. And then there's like space imperialism and space uh, interplanetary warfare too. So there are elements of it that you could kind of only call science fiction uh, today. That's amazing. And I just love, by the way, in case you didn't know, second century CE, everybody, that's the Roman Empire. Right. And Lucian was a Syrian and he was writing in Greek. But yes, you're correct. That would be Uh, under the Roman Empire. Uh, Lucian was a satirist, too, um, and what he was really targeting at this point were these ancient sources that made outrageous or outlandish claims about mythological or fantastic events being absolutely true. So that's why he called his novel a true story, because it's kind of a joke. Um, So in a sense, he's not only laying the groundwork for the major thematic conventions of modern sci-fi, but he's also paving the way for writers like Douglas Adams to combine sci-fi concepts with humor or satire, or he's like the original Rick and Morty in a way. So I love that the invention of the the genre also coincides with satire and humor. Now I'm going to skip forward a number of centuries because we see uh, much later several proto-science fiction texts written during the 17th and 18th centuries, which is not really surprising because that's the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. Uh, So we get texts like Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, and even Voltaire is writing some science fiction at this point. Uh, But I think it's in the 19th century when I'd argue that the genre really starts to take shape in a way that we would recognize it today. 
Um, that is really with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1818, which is by some considered the first sci-fi novel, despite the fact that there are some instances of it or instances of something like science fiction earlier on. Then we get the works of Jules Verne and toward the end of the 19th century, H.G. Wells, who we talked about at length in our first episode on Bill and Ted. So if you want to know more about him, definitely check out that episode. During the 19th century, this is the Industrial Revolution. So we're seeing rapid advances in technology. We're seeing increased interconnectedness throughout the world. And sci-fi starts becoming really prescient. It starts anticipating these technological developments. It starts imagining how humanity reacts with varying levels of realism. So that's why I'd argue that science fiction really becomes itself in the 19th century because people are thinking about not just what if we could travel to space or what if we had a time machine, but if we did have that, what would it do to us or how would we handle those technologies or those advancements? And I think that's core to what sci-fi really is, an exploration of humanity under imagined conditions. Yeah, I totally agree with that because it, it starts with the idea. So and it makes sense that it gets its heyday really starting in the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Revolution was truly a technological age. It's the time where um, instead of in particular, Western European American societies, instead of being agrarian, instead of being based around farmers, it started being based around factories. It started with and was because of technology developed out of the scientific revolution. So we learned more efficient ways to empirically do things and people started doing these things more efficient and those produced technologies that didn't previously exist. So instead of in the Roman Empire, just imagining a ship that could sail to another world and have to battle something, we now have actual tangible technology where we could imagine what's the next step of that technology. So if we can master things like germs and we can figure out the movements of the heavens so precisely that we can predict where what stars will be we can mathematically prove that the world is round and we can build a more efficient, more productive society. The question is, what else can this technology do? Can it do things like maybe now that we know we're on a planet and that planet is round and doesn't have the universe revolving around it, can we explore the other planets? I wonder what's going to be, what it's like to be on those other planets. If we can mass produce horseless carriages... Can we mass produce carriages that can take us to the moon? What's on the moon? And I think these things, these imaginary scenarios coincide with the tangible gains of the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and then the industrial revolution. And so writers now are having the freedom saying, looking at this, this landscape, this technological world that we have built, a world that's globally integrated, what other things can we achieve and when can we achieve them? And what do we as a individual in some cases, as a small group, or in other cases, as an entire collective global community, how will we react when these other things happen? So the question isn't now, where do we live and what's the nature of the place that we live as it is in ancient Greece? 
The question now is, we live on a planet, it's called Earth. There are nine other planets. What's it like on these other planets? Are there other creatures we couldn't imagine on them? And then as this progresses, as we discover things like the space-time continuum, then the question is, if we can move through space, and if time and space are linked, can we move through time? Is time a barrier that we can traverse just as is space is a barrier? Um, and I think this is something that echoes through all five of the properties that we did, is this question of what can our relationship techno to technology, what does it look like? What futures can it bring? What challenges can it bring? To me, the reason science fiction myself, why I am personally a fan and why I think it's so fun investigating is because it deals with imagined technologies, not always imagined futures. Rick and Morty takes place during our time, right? So I presume they're living in 2020 America. I mean, Rick and Morty are dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So they are living in our time and in our timeline as characters, but it's always with at least imaginary technologies, often imaginary futures. We get to explore our own relationship to those technologies and what that means. It's inherently a technologically based medium in terms of a genre, and it inherently interrogates the human condition through those technologies. Specific examples from the text that we have examined over the past five weeks. Alien examines those technologies and it discovers a very dark vision of human nature because of it. There's still corporate greed. There is still uh, the desire to gain new technologies for the extent of profit. People are fundamentally expendable. There is still rigid social hierarchy. There's still patriarchy that's pushing down, you know, a character like Ripley. And there, are, there is AI, and AI exists simply to serve the corporation, just to serve these other machines, just to continue the train of capitalism for the sake of capitalism with no other humanization to it. That is an imagined future, one that is very bleak, it's very dark, and the movie itself is a horror film. Contrast that to, let's say, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. By no means have they made a perfect society. After all, these people are still flawed. They still make mistakes. And those mistakes, they are still fundamentally going to come back and bite you in the rear the way that Kirk makes a mistake with Khan, the way that Kirk makes a mistake with Dr. Marcus and his son that he's estranged from. But at the end of the day, there are things like money is gone, patriarchy is gone, there's still a military apparatus, but it's fundamentally science-based, and this presents a more optimistic you know, outlook to, hey, these technologies, space exploration, being able to beam to other planets, or to being able to discover other species, is going to lead to more international cooperation. It's going to break down the barriers of what it means to be us and them, and start creating a pan-galactic federation that says it's all us. And that's also so fundamentally optimistic. And both are exploring the human condition from two different fundamental lenses, one which is cold and ruthless and pessimistic, coming out of the 70s, is, that any, is there any mistake? The 70s was a cold and pessimistic 
uh, decade for, uh, in particular for America, so much of 70s cinema reflects it. So if we can discover interstellar travel, yeah, it's just going to be greedy corporations and psychotic robots and a harsh uh, orderly patriarchy, you know, stifling the will of the brightest crew member. And then in the 80s, a fundamentally more optimistic time in American history, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union. You have great economic prosperity. And it's like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to conquer space, but it's going to be nice and friendly. We won't have any enemies. We're all going to you know, lock hands. And the mistakes that we make are going to be individual mistakes that we make. It's not going to be a collective mistake that we are making. And, I think, and we have, you know, a, an apparatus in place to hold people accountable for those mistakes, but it's done with mercy and it's done with like great context of like everything that goes into every decision that a person makes. So like, yes, you'll be held accountable if you make a mistake, but it will be taken as like a, a part of the whole and not a judgment on your character. Absolutely. Totally. And so I think we can internalize the way these different texts deal with the human condition and and how they interact with technology as the way to highlight different aspects of the human condition. And I think so much of this comes back to those questions that are first being asked in the 19th century. And yes, this is all a continuum, but that's the moment, I think, when we're solidifying current economic systems. So we start asking, you know, what if this economic system persisted into the future and we follow it to its quote-unquote logical conclusion? Wouldn't it say that humans are expendable and we can send them off on missions and put them in great danger? Or wouldn't it say the opposite? And H.G. Wells, as we've talked about before, is a great example of the optimistic worldview, because although he was extremely prescient and he predicted things like the internet um, and was an incredible mind in terms of thinking about where uh, our interconnected globalized world would go, he had a very optimistic view of that. He thought that globalization would lead to a very good thing in a world state, in a centralized human government where all countries were one country, um, and that we would all be interconnected through a source of knowledge that everyone could access, everybody um, had equal access to, and that that would lead to a more educated and uh, peaceful society. Obviously, we've seen uh, increased globalization. We've seen uh, almost universal access to knowledge, but it's not universal access, and it has there's argument about whether or not it has made us dumber having more access to information. So it's kind of interesting to see how different, um, how different minds, how different writers, how different interpreters have taken those questions uh, that really originate in the 19th century and said, okay, where are we going to go? Uh, and some of them have said, we're going to, you know, basically barrel into the sun. And the others have said, we are going to become a more peaceful and perfect society. Yeah, and we live in the era of post. And what do I mean by that? First, technologically and um, economically, we're post-industrial. We've moved beyond the industrial age into the technological, purely technological age, the computer age. So we are post-industrial. Intellectually, we are now in the post-modern age, Modernity happened in the 19th and 20th centuries, and we've moved beyond that. We are post-modern. And in many ways, we're also post-truth now. And that's the natural outgrowth of both. 
now not having a central core economic philosophy that says, let us produce more goods faster and efficient. We've got that down. Now what? Now let's move beyond just thinking of the, the knowledge of the past and deconstruct that and ask the question, hey, what was that knowledge for? Is it even good? We've moved beyond that. And now we're in the post-truth era. And this is where Rick and Morty really gets it. And this is why Rick and Morty philosophically had to be the cap to our sci-fi series, because it has a series of characters who are all nihilists to one degree or another. They are post-industrial in that Rick no longer is caring about the means of production. He's no care. He's not caring about his technology being more efficient, being able to produce a better economic output for the global good of his community. In fact, he hates his community, all communities, the interdimensional community that he discovered he hates. His technology is designed to purely supply adventures for him because he's drunk and bored. He even hates the society that's created of alternate dimension versions of himself, which tells you everything you need to know about that character, that he is absolutely anti the Citadel of Ricks because he can't even stand himself. And here, and here we are in all in the era of post with our new hero of the sci-fi age, Rick Sanchez, who has vomit streaming down his face, middle fingers up at all, and just you know snorting crystals and putting his grandkids in harm's way for the, his own enjoyment and fun. And the question that I think this has, as we look at the you know, 60-decade-long exploration into sci-fi, capping it with Rick and Morty, arguably the most popular sci-fi show we have on TV right now, one of, if not the most, what does this say about us now? And that is where sci-fi becomes really interesting to interrogate. How it interrogates the human condition as relation to future or more advanced or more powerful technologies, exploration, or landscapes, you know, whether you're on an alien planet, what do people say and do? Do they just try to capture an egg so that they can, you know, become more advanced? Or do they enter into an alien technology and come out a more highly evolved being? Rick and Morty looks at all of that and says, all of that's a joke. Every single one of that, every single essence of that, every single moment of that is meaningless. So much so that when the show, in particular in season five, leans into a convention such as the heist convention or the time travel convention. It does so with utter contempt from the main character, hating those conventions, trying to prove that those conventions are so conventional that they are in essence stupid. And Rick and Morty is stupefying sci-fi looking back at the decades before and saying, yeah, none of you figured out anything. And the reason why is you haven't learned the painful lesson it's all meaningless. And the fact that that resonates so deeply within our sci-fi geek culture gives me a sense of pause to say, how are we defining our moment now? And this is not to say, I think people should stop watching Rick and Morty because I'm not, I freaking love it. It's amazing. But if the purpose of the midnight myth is to ask the deeper question, and if the deeper question of sci-fi is, how does sci-fi interrogate the human condition? And the most popular show is Rick and Morty. 
what is Rick and Marty saying about the human condition? You turn around and you look and you're like, oh man, where are we right now? 2020 in the middle of a pandemic with economic uncertainty throughout the entire world, political upheaval everywhere. And Rick Sanchez is our hero. And you're like, yeah, I kind of get how we got here. Yeah. I think that's a really, really interesting point. Um, and, and gets to like Rick and Morty arguably has its finger on the pulse of like contemporary, not necessarily all sentiment, but contemporary like youth. And I would say millennial sentiment better than most shows. Um, so I, I think you're onto something here, especially with how it, uh, interrogates and, um, sort of makes ridiculous the conventions of science fiction. What's interesting though, is that I think we still in the TV universe get that weird little, um, psychic balance with the other very popular long running sci-fi TV show, Dr. Who, uh, where, in Rick and Morty, we have a very pessimistic worldview. We have a lot of nihilism. We have a lot of existentialism. We have a lot of absurdism, all kind of living in the same soup together. Whereas um, in Doctor Who, we have a continued commitment to sincerity, a continued commitment to um, just incredible selflessness and the idea that, yes, uh, an interconnected universe and advanced technology does lead to greater challenges, but uh, all of those things can be overcome by like absolute dedication to something higher than yourself. And as I'm saying this, you know, superhero movies do also contain sci-fi conventions. They've become their own genre at this point, but they originated as uh, a subgenre of sci-fi. And I would say Marvel movies have that same kind of outlook too. So as the like differing poles, we're still seeing a bit of a psychic balance between the optimistic and the pessimistic sides of what sci-fi can offer. Both of those can offer incredible political and social commentary. And both of those worldviews can have deep, incredible nuance. And that's something that we have seen in our series as well. 2001, we arrived at was a deeply optimistic, but nuanced portrayal of an imagined future. And Star Trek The Wrath of Khan is a nuanced, optimistic portrayal with some social and political commentary as well. And then uh, Alien is deeply pessimistic, but has nuance to it. So I think we're always going to see uh, the manifestation of, of these two fundamentally different um, outlooks on what's possible with science fiction. Black Mirror is another example of the modern, very pessimistic view. Yeah, so I would I'd butt up against a few things there, if, you, if you'll permit yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is not to say I think you're wrong. I don't think nihilism is pessimism. I, In fact, I think it's the opposite. I think nihilism says, if the pessimist says the glass is half empty and the optimist says the glass is half full, the nihilist pushes the glass to the ground and breaks it. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. And so I don't think Rick and Morty is in particular philosophically more pessimistic or optimistic. That's fair. Yeah. I think it is It is saying that, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Be as pessimistic as you want to be. Be as optimistic as you want to be. Those don't mean anything. Those terms don't compute to Rick Sanchez as the character. He's beyond those things because he sees their inherent meaninglessness. Um, I would say about the Doctor Who thing, which I agree with, Doctor Who and Terminator 2, which I don't think 
or given enough love to T2 in this discussion, share two things. One other than, well, they share time travel as one thing, as a major convention, but they're also fundamentally about humanized technology. Yeah. The technology itself learns to adapt and grow and become more human. In the the doctor and the relationship to the TARDIS, the TARDIS as an AI time-traveling companion to the doctor, not the companion, but it's telling that when the doctor evolves and changes and is reborn, so is the TARDIS reborn, that they are almost one. This becomes literally true in a Matt Smith episode where the the TARDIS becomes an actual uh, flesh and blood um, human being um, or living creature, not a human being. And in Terminator 2, it is about teaching a ruthless killing machine to find the value of human life. And I think they both share the idea that to unlock the real potential of technology, it must be humanized. It must, and humanized can be a, a huge word, it must feel and think, and you must interact with the technology in a way that feels and thinks, rather than just cold analytics. You know, so... The Terminator says, why can't I kill someone? And John Connor is just like, you just can't. I, I can't explain why you can't kill people. I just intuitively, I humanly know it's wrong. And you just have to obey this command of mine if you're going to help me out. And through that standpoint of like, okay, killing people is wrong, I guess, it finally learns the value. It being the Terminator learns the value of human life and ends up self-sacrificing, self-terminating to help save others. And this is about humanizing the technology. Something that I think is very important when we look at our modern, or I should say postmodern technological age, how are we humanizing our technology? Increasingly, the way we interact with the world is going to be through the lens of a digital screen. This is how you interact with the Midnight Myth podcast. You find us on technology, we wouldn't exist. Like, we wouldn't have a radio show pre-internet and podcasts. Most likely not, no. But we can because of the technology. How are we interacting it and how are we humanizing it? And I think that is something that both Doctor Who and Terminator 2 give us that I think can offer us at the very least a glimmer of, of optimism when we look at the postmodern, post-industrial, post-truth, deeply nihilistic world of Rick and Morty, or I should say deeply nihilistic multiverse of Rick and Morty, and we say, is there a response to that? And I think Terminator 2 offers us a response that I don't know if it answers. I don't know if it says, yes, there's meaning to all of this. I don't know if it can do that, but it gives a sense of if there is a way to avoid Skynet destroying us, it's going to be teaching machines to think and feel, which is a way to say we have to teach humans to think and feel so they can teach the machines to think and feel. You know, like those things are inextricably linked. It's about humanizing the technology. And, um, And, you know, we have to call ourselves out in the way that we utilize technology to connect with the world. Are we out there piling on the trolls? Are we out there reinforcing our own sense of self, our own sense of ideology, our own credo? You know, I was uh, discussing with a coworker who I happen to 
agree with politically very much. Like we, we tend to agree and it's a, it's a coworker I hadn't seen in a long time because of social distancing happens to be a little older who came into the office for just like an hour or two. We were by ourselves and talking and we were discussing the idea of politics as the new religion. And I was thinking about the way that we self-identify with is in particular in America. I don't know if it's this way in the rest of the world. And we're thinking about how our political selves have become our actual selves. And it's not so much that we can disagree on how to solve a problem. It's about burning the heretic out of society. They're not even allowed to be here because we find them, the people that disagree so abhorrent. And I do think the way we've dehumanized ourselves through technology is at least a part of the reason that exists because we can find our technological safe space. We can surround ourselves with people that agree with us digitally and we can purge all of those who disagree from our silos and we can build these really safe knowledge systems that are fundamentally dehumanizing others. And I look at Terminator 2 and I think this is the way we can maybe break down these barriers. Let's all try to learn how to think and feel a little bit better. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, I think you've got it. And I think um, maybe instead of optimistic and pessimistic, the distinction that I should have put out there between like the Rick and Morty's and the Black Mirrors of the world versus the, um, you know, the Doctor Who's and the T2's and the Star Trek's of the world is a, distinct, a distinction between attachment and detachment. So it's where do you, um, where do you fall on the spectrum of your attachment to humanity? Um, and, and I think even just thinking about that, Rick and Morty is an interesting example because uh, while Rick falls very far on the spectrum of detachment from humanity and continues to pull himself away from humanity, the rest of the characters on that show are doing everything they can to reinforce attachment to humanity. So, uh, again, you know, this is something we talked about in our episode last week. There is a little bit of a disconnect because, uh, of the way that we perceive that show and how funny and how appealing Rick is sometimes that we internalize the wrong messaging about his character. Uh, so I th thank you for that, um, that you just shared, because I think that got me to the right place where it's not about optimism versus pessimism. It's, it's about attachment and detachment. It's about how we humanize uh, through the advancements that make our world unrecognizable from a previous world. We still have to reach out and we still have to be able to, uh, to find that attachment to the rest of humanity. Totally agree with that there. And I think Terminator 2 in many ways is the of the philosophical core, the one that gives me, ironically, the best sense of optimism. Right, right. You know, because it, it fundamentally says that, you know, and we talk about Star Trek, uh, Wrath of Khan, technology is purely utility in Star Trek. It's there as a mechanic for the characters that gets them from point A to point B. Um, yes, there's a strong attachment to their ships, but their ships are purely vessels where in Terminator 2, it is the technology that saves everyone. Right. Literally, the Terminator is there to protect and save. And by protecting and saving, then learns to self-sacrifice and to care and to love. And I think... To me, that is the sort of lesson if that that can happen in Terminator 2 and we think about this, the horrible, horrible mess that is reality right now, um, that's a lesson that I take 
and I, I don't necessarily think Rick Sanchez, the character is wrong in ascribing the ultimate meaninglessness. Right. Yeah. But I think you hit the nail on the head of the question is, well, what attachment do you have to humanity in the face of that meaninglessness? That is to me a distinction between nihilism and existentialism. Well, and you know, my, my favorite of all, which is absurdism, which is sort of a, an outgrowth of the two. You know, a nihilist says there is no meaning. Everything is meaningless. And an existentialist says it's up to you to make meaning out of the meaningless. Because it's not going to be given to you. And an absurdist says, yes, all of that is true. And wow, the tension of that stuff is like overwhelming sometimes. But because of that, we just have to acknowledge the absurdism of that tension and move forward as though it's all going to be fine. Which is why I think politics has become the new religion in many ways in America. Um, And I don't mean that literally, like I don't think people worship politics. I think we're close, but I don't literally mean it. Um, But I do think in an era where it's increasingly hard to find meaning, our political camps are a way to give us meaning in the meaninglessness. And I think it it works really well. The problem is, is the technology also fuels a dehumanization. Yeah, and it reinforces those biases, yeah. And I don't want to just like, I don't want to find a portal gun one day and discover interdimensional cable and be able to travel the multiverse with my grandson only to just be a selfish, egotistical, meaningless ruthless, depressed, drunk prick. I was like, please end this with prick. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the lesson. And like, and I, and I love Rick and Morty so much, but I think you hit the nail on the head. The character is so great. Sometimes we think that's what should be striving. We should be striving for when no, I want to be Captain Kirk. I want to be uncle Bob. Or I want to be Beth Smith. And I want to say, I don't even care if I'm a clone. I don't care if it's meaningless. I love my dolt of a husband, Jerry. I want to be kids. I want to be Ripley and save the freaking cat. Yeah, save the cat, even if I almost die doing it. And it's a meaningless cat, but it gives me some degree of comfort and control. Think about that. There's no better um, sci-fi representation of the utter meaninglessness of the universe than the xenomorph as a creature. It has presumable intelligence. It has great evolutionary advantages. And all it does is think, eat, hunt, and lay more eggs. And that's all it's capable of really doing. And Ripley as the counterpoint is so awesome because Ripley saves the cat. I love it. We're we're treading previous waters. I want to switch gears just a little bit. I have a couple of questions Uh, That will get us into more ideas about sci-fi and more of the stuff that we discussed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, So I'd love to start with some of those. Uh, My first question for you, Derek, uh, of the films we watched and the TV shows that we watched, there is a spectrum of quote unquote seriousness. Uh, Sci-fi has always walked this line between pulp and serious literature Uh, And one of the things I didn't really get to in my overview in my brief history is how much of 20th century sci-fi was uh, serials and comic books and radio adventures and, you know, Flash Gordon and Forbidden Planet and all of these things that are not considered, quote unquote, serious. Um, 
And then there's other things on the other end, like Dune, which is one of the like most critically acclaimed ever. Or there's 2001, there's the works of Arthur C. Clarke uh, and several other sci-fi properties that are considered higher literature than others. So my question is, uh, is one end of this spectrum more valuable than the other, or is there value in both? Uh, what do you think? Oh, man. So here's here's my take on that question. It's a big question. I rail quite often against postmodernism as a failure of an intellectual construct to really better the human condition. And I have, I'm railing about it in this episode. I've railed about it in other episodes, but I'm also a product of postmodernist education. So here's my postmodernism coming out. Who gets to say what piece of literature text is or isn't serious? Why do we have the distinction of quote unquote seriousness? And how does seriousness even relate to a genre? And a great example of this, the works of William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens, everyone would consider them today very serious authors, but at the time they were considered mass consumption garbage. The two arguably greatest writers ever were considered garbage in their time. Right. Van Gogh, my personal favorite painter and arguably the best painter who's ever lived, was considered in his time to be a talentless hack. How do we come to the point where we can say, what is a serious work versus what is a pulp work? Where does that distinction line and who has the authority to ascribe it? And the postmodern education in me tells me that that line is completely and totally imaginary. And I do think in this regard, the postmodernists are correct. Because our relationship to a text, be it a film, a comic, a movie, a novel, whatever, can and will change over time, the way it's viewed and its seriousness versus its pulpiness, which is a way to say its artfulness versus its artlessness, are going to evolve and change. Dickens did it for money. Shakespeare did it for money. They wanted to cash in on their talent and did and created some of the most endearing works of all time. Star Trek was a, what, three series failed TV show that created one of the biggest pop culture fan phenomenons that has ever existed in the last 60 years and will probably outlive you and I, Laurel, and maybe even our imagined grandkids. It could still be going on. Is that not serious? And to me, yeah, that's pretty freaking serious. And even though it's considered by some to be lowbrow pulp, I don't necessarily, I, I'll say this, I reject the question itself. I think if we're, going, I, if we're going to interrogate these things, if we're going to um, have meaningful relationships to texts in any way, shape, or form, I do think there's value in unlearning previous paradigms that say this is art and this is not. And I think it like, for example, industry can't be art. Well, Dickens was industry. Star Wars is a, and Star Trek, massive industries. And I think that's pretty serious all at the same time. So I think wherever we stand on the answer to this question, and that doesn't mean there's no, there isn't value in criticism. That doesn't mean there can't be experts 
who can um, make arguments about where one piece of artwork fits in its time above or below others. I think there's tremendous value in that. That doesn't mean we all have to be fans. And that doesn't mean when something is bad, we can't say that it's bad. But we have to understand that 50, 100, 250 years from now, that might not be considered bad. I'll give you a specific example of a work I personally don't view serious. It, it's a it's a sci-fi property, the movie Star Trek Into Darkness. I don't think that's a good movie. I think it is a failure critically. I think it doesn't do a good job conveying any me, any meaning. I think it relies on intertextuality. It revi- relies on a shock appeal that Benedict Cumberbatch is con when everybody knew it was con. Like, why even pretend? And I was listening to a podcast today on Verbal Diorama, hosted by M, who had, um, from Geek Salad Radio, another podcast I genuinely love, Andy. Andy went there and said that's one of his favorite movies of all time. And I'm like, you know, Andy knows what he's talking about. I listened to his podcast, so I know he knows what he's talking about. So it's like, who's to say? I thought it's not serious. But here's someone who I think they're very highly of their opinion saying that, yeah, no, that's very serious. So I think there's room to just throw that question out. I think that's a great answer. Uh, I will just add a couple of things. Uh, One that I love pulp and I love trash. Um, And I think that uh, one thing that we do a lot on the Midnight Myth is elevate pulp and trash or things that are usually considered uh, lower brow. And we say, actually, here's, you know, something that you should consider uh, about that. And the other thing that I'll add is, just as we talk about the development of a genre uh, and especially a genre like science fiction, where so much of its development has been uh, in a sort of subcultural sense uh, and has not been mainstream, has been uh, a little bit underground in terms of uh, how it's received. uh, The role of pulp and trash in informing the conventions and in setting up the genre for the success that it is today uh, cannot be overstated. So like we, we wouldn't have, you know, anything that we have today without a princess of Mars. And nobody's going to say that a princess of Mars is serious literature, but it is like deeply important. And like you said, we wouldn't have, uh, I mean, Star Trek is going to outlive us. And I am, uh, I fall victim sometimes to looking at Star Trek, the original series, which I love and being like, yeah, but it's, you know, low budget and it's pulpy. Um, but at the same time, it produces The Wrath of Khan, which I can't, I can't truthfully say is an elevated version of Star Trek because it's the characters as they are. It's the themes that really resonate throughout the original series. And it is like the epitome of Star Trek. So it's not an elevated Star Trek. It is Star Trek. So that's just a thing that I'll add to it is that um, I think you're right that these arbitrary distinctions of what is art and what is not art Uh, are really just that. They're arbitrary, but uh, I think there is uh, an importance today in going back and revaluing what was considered trash. Yeah, and I think there's nothing wrong with uh, likes of a Stanley Kubrick, a Ridley Scott, or James Cameron going and being like, I think we can do this genre better. Yeah. And doing the genre better. Like, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. I know Stanley Kubrick in particular looked at sci-fi called up Arthur C. Clarke and was just like, I don't think there's been a good sci-fi movie, a really good sci-fi movie yet. Do you want to help me make it? 
I think that's totally cool and amazing. But I think from my perspective, serious pulp, these are distinctions um, that don't matter that much to me. And it's something that happens with um, fantasy and horror as well. And it's something that I think is uh, disproportionately applied to quote unquote genre literature, genre film, uh, and these things that are subcultural, uh, things that are usually relegated to that one section of the bookstore that is not serious literature or that is not high literature. So I think it happens disproportionately to those genres. Um, and it, and it's not because those genres are worse or are lower than what we call high literature. Yep, totally. So we're kind of pressing for time, but you had other questions. I'm okay with going over because I'm having so much fun. Yeah, I have two more discussion questions, if that's cool with you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the next question that I have is two of the films that we curated, uh, Alien and T2 specifically, featured women protagonists. Uh, and sci-fi has often taken on social critique and feminism or has challenged gender norms. For example, Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, imagines a future society uh, that is past gender. Uh, what gives sci-fi the freedom or permission to imagine gender differently from other genres? And I would love if you would let me preface this with one thing. Um, because I was thinking about this and I was thinking about my relationship to sci-fi uh, and how I've always kind of devalued it next to fantasy because I've always been a little bit more attracted to fantasy. But um, for me, I think there is, and I'm making a sweeping generalization here because both of these genres are so huge, but the properties that I think get the most attention in fantasy tend to be uh, usually informed by the medieval and usually informed by patriarchy much more than sci-fi does. Uh, so, th I mean, it, it feels weird to make that claim, and I apologize if I'm sweeping over a huge portion of feminist fantasy, but it feels harder to find than feminist sci-fi. Uh, so I'm just curious about what gives sci-fi that freedom. So one, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that question in any way, shape, or form with any authority. And I almost feel the opposite. If you want to see something toxic, go back to 12-year-old Derek and his boyfriends talking about science fiction and fantasy, talking about Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, and have someone come up that's not necessarily fluent in those languages and ask a question, and you'll see the seeds of toxic masculinity yeah. right then and there. And I participated in gatekeeper gatekeepery. Uh, you're not a real fan unless blah, 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 blah. And I have always seen one of my roles in the midnight myth to try to challenge that previous patriarchal, previous gatekeeper, previous, oh, for lack of a better term, jerk that I was as a fan back in the day. And I think fandom has in the sci-fi and fantasy community explicitly, also the comic community as well, has sometimes done more to exclude than include. So my personal experience of it has been one where like, you know what, we need to make more space for others because like, I love this thing and it's totally cool if other people that don't look, act, um, you know, whatever, worship, pray, however you want to make love, however you want to you know, define diversity that have a, what am I trying to say? 
it's totally okay for people different from me to like a thing that I like and like it in a different way than I like it. And I feel that sometimes sci-fi and fantasy, one of the downsides is that it doesn't always give that space. So I, in terms of to answer your specific question, I think I have to push that right back to you to answer it because I don't feel like I can. I, I, I appreciate that. I really do. And I think, um, you know, while the question I was asking was really more about why does the literature tend to make more space for um, challenging of gender norms, that has not been exactly reflected in the audience or the fandom. So I'm glad that you brought in the element of, okay, who's reading this? Who is watching this? And who is allowing, uh, quote unquote, allowing someone into that community? I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, I just don't know on this one. I really don't have a strong answer for you. Um, and the reason I don't is because I just don't know. So there are certainly, you know, Ripley's and Sarah Connors to, to pull from. You mentioned another text I don't know, but predominantly the heroes are, you know, white cisgender men. Predominantly the storytellers are white cisgendered men. And so I, I feel that, yeah, there's some space, you know, like Star Trek was great in that it had a diverse cast that had, that was both racially, ethnically diverse. And that was really revolutionary in the sixties to have all of these, you know, diverse array of characters, but in order to be made, it still needed a James Kirk at the helm. And so I just don't know if sci-fi has really achieved what you have, but I mean, I guess the easiest answer is if it's if it's in the future, people are less sexist yeah. and hopefully the future is less sexist. Right. Well, and that I think is probably what's at the core of and and like you said, it's not that, you know, sci fi is 10,000 times more progressive or that it makes tons of space for marginalized voices. But I do I do get excited about um about the fact that it does make some space for marginalized voices and that there are uh, plenty of writers who have found sci-fi to be a really interesting home for new ideas, like Ursula Le Guin, like Octavia Butler, like N.K. Jemisin, whose uh, work is going around right now and that is really exciting. It has been um, an interesting haven for marginalized voices as writers and also for characters that represent a wider array of the universe. And I think that's really at the core of it, that it's it's a genre that's tied to the future rather than fantasy, which has historically been tied to the past. Uh, and that's not in, that's not true of 100% of fantasy texts, but there is a preoccupation with the medieval, there's a preoccupation with the ancient, with the occult, with the, uh, you know, the really old ways uh, and it can be hard to break out of the, those conventions and think about things in a different way. Even when you're working in fantasy, when they're like, technically, there are no rules to what you can do when you're writing in fantasy. You should be able to write a totally ethnically diverse, gender diverse, sexuality diverse world. And some people definitely have. But I think writers feel more free to do so in science fiction because we're imagining a future rather than, you know, being tied to these archaic ideas of uh, quote unquote high fantasy. Yeah. It's like people criticize the show game of Thrones for not casting people of color. And they were like, well, it's a medieval show. It's like, 
No, it's not. It's in Westeros. Yeah, it's in Westeros. Yeah, it doesn't so, even exist. Right. Yeah. So it's it's just a question that I'm interested in going forward, and something that I really want to do uh, and commit myself to in the year ahead is, uh, you know, reading those voices more um, m- more intentionally and seeking out those voices uh, in genre. Cool. You have another question or shall we wrap it? Just a fun one. Um, there are clearly, as we have just done a survey, there are dozens, if not more, of subgenres of science fiction. Uh, we have cyberpunk, we have space opera, space western, post-apocalyptic. There are genre hybrids like sci-fi horror and sci-fi comedy. Uh, and I just want to ask for fun here at the end, is there a subgenre that most appeals to you, maybe not your favorite, but that most appeals to you in this moment and your favorite example of that classification? Space opera, Star Wars, boom, done. Nice. I mean, that's Star Wars is the most important story of my life. I adore it. It's easily my favorite and I constantly am going back to it. I have a lightsaber that I practice swinging around the house when I'm bored I am a Star Wars man through and through. Second would be time travel because I am a Doctor Who fan. So it goes for me, Star Wars, Doctor Who, everything else. Nice. I'm going to say one that appeals to me a lot in the moment, maybe not always my favorite, but one of my favorites for sure would be gothic science fiction. And the top example is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because I truly think Frankenstein, oh, put myself on blast here. I think Frankenstein is the most influential novel ever written. I'm just going to open that can of worms and maybe we'll come back to it someday. Uh, But elements of science fiction, elements of horror, elements of the gothic novel, environmental literature, feminism, uh, it's just got everything. You know, influence is a fairly empirical, um, you know, measurable, you know, trait. Are you really committing that it's, more influential than other works of literature. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) And that's how I will end this episode. Uh, We're way over time. Love you all. Thank you for listening. We got really deep and heady. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.